Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Live around the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com and across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station and or FM translator. It is the Michael Duke Show, the Thursday edition of the big radio show. And uh, yeah, we're still praying for summer to show up. One of these days it's going to happen. I mean, I'm just praying that that two days on the weekend, which thank you, Lord, for providing us at least summer to fall on a weekend, uh, it would, I'm just praying that that's not it, that we just blinked and missed it. And now we're moving on to fall. I mean, we are moving on to losing daylight now, right? Because yesterday was the solstice, but I mean, I'm just such a ray of sunshine on this beautiful Thursday morning. All right. Well, we got a jam packed show for you today. I mean, jam freaking packed. Uh, we're going to start off here in just a moment with JD to Chili from reason magazine, who wrote a great article, uh, over in Reason, talking about healthcare in America. I'm going to get into that here in just one second, but in hour two of the broadcast today, it's a double whammy. We've got Representatives Justin Ruffridge and Representative Julie Columbi, uh, uh, Colum, I'm sorry, who's going to be coming on board and talking with us about the governor's vetoes, the education funding, what's happening this session, whether or not they're going to try and override the vetoes, and more. Uh, this should be an interesting uh, duality conversation. We're going to have both of them on to talk about the idea of a long-term fiscal plan and more. So that's coming up in hour two. Uh, so double trouble in hour two. Uh, again, in this hour, JD to Chile from Reasons going to be on board. You know, we always talk about health care and everybody holds up, well, the National Health Service in England or the Canadian healthcare. This is all great. And it's all, th-. you know, still People are flocking to America for many reasons, and in fact, if you look at the number of MRI and and CAT scan machines and everything else along the northern border of the U.S., you see that there's an inordinate amount, comparatively, uh, per capita of those types of machines there because there's a lot of Canadians who sneak down and everything else. And But even with all that, we have something that's fundamentally broken, and I would argue that it's government interventionalism that's broken, that's breaking the free market healthcare system in America. And I think the things that J.D. talks about here uh, about this point that out, that really what we have now is a collusion, uh, you know, a, a bit of crony capitalism between the government and the now the insurance markets. And it's become a racket. I mean, I was first I opened on this when my daughter, <clears throat> my first daughter was born. She's 28 now. Um, but when she was born, it, she was premature. We spent a lot of time in the hospital. And I remember I slept in the hospital shortly after the birth. And I was like, I got to go to work. But uh, it was before I, I wasn't wearing this magnificent beard all the time. And I said, God, I have to shave. And I said, do you happen to have a disposable razor? And one of the nurses brought me a disposable razor. And I went and looked at the bill later on. And that one big disposable razor was something like 
12 or $13 for that one razor. And I was like, well, something is fundamentally broken here, right? I mean, a four pack of these things is like three bucks. And I'm like, I understand. Anyway, um, so that was my first eye opening at age 21. That was my first eye opening uh, shock of what was going on with healthcare here in America. So let's jump into it and let's get started this morning. JD Tuchili, our guest uh, from Reason Magazine, he's an editor over there and he joins us this morning to discuss it. Good morning, JD. How you doing this morning, my friend? Doing well, doing well. Probably a little warmer than you guys up there, right? Boy, I don't know. I, every time I look at your weather forecast and at what you're posting on Facebook, I think I hate that guy. I mean, just a little bit. It's so, but I guess that's what you get for living down there in beautiful. No, it's high country Arizona, right? You're not down in the Phoenix area. You're up in the you're up in no, God's no. God's country up there, where you do see snow, you do see a little bit of this, but at least. It's not raining right now all the time. This has been the worst summer, man. I don't even know what to say to this. Um, All right. Well, let's get started, J.D., because I think this is a super important topic. Um, And because this becomes, you know, if if people look back at the expenditures in their life, uh, you know, if 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 you just happen to be laying on your deathbed and thinking back about all the great times and all the bad times, and you look back, the healthcare part is... I mean, it's a big chunk of what we expend our earthly wealth on in the long run, right? Because we're trying to stay healthy, or maybe we get sick, or we have kids, or we do all these things. And it's kind of almost a necessity for, you know, for a happy, healthy life. At some point, you're going to have some kind of medical issue or medical costs. And, um, you know, we have argued on the libertarian side of things for a long time that there should be things like, you know, uh, you should allow uh, insurance companies to sell across state borders. You should be able to open up, give doctors the opportunity to do the cash things. Now we've got this direct primary care thing, which I think is a step in the right direction. But overall, <clears throat> the big problem here is, as you say in the headline of the article, private insurance and government programs working kind of in concert are driving up the cost of healthcare. So get me started on this, how you got started on this, and, and give me some background here. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and let's be clear, we don't actually have health insurance in this country in most cases. We have prepaid health coverage. You pay your premium and then you try to get as much out of it as you can. And that's a big part of the problem right there. Now, in my piece, I riffed on the fact that I had a, a halter monitor prescribed by my cardiologist. You know, the why of it doesn't matter that much, except that I'm in my 50s, right? This stuff happens. But uh, it's a monitor you tape to your chest to monitors your um, heart activity in my case, for a week. Then I stuck it in a box and I mailed it back to the company. And then I got a letter from my health insurance company, which is not health insurance, but uh, my prepaid medical coverage company, um, saying that they weren't going to cover it because it wasn't medically necessary. Um, And then I saw how much they were being asked to pay, and I didn't fully blame them. It was $4,000 for that one week of monitoring by a little widget I stuck to my chest and then mailed back. So I got curious, and I looked up online. If I were to buy that monitor outright, how much would it cost? And the fact of the matter is that that four grand it represents about two to three times the cost of buying a monitor outright, a halter monitor outright. So um, for a one week rental, it costs double buying the monitor would cost. Now, of course, you, you've got to get in there, the cardiologist to download the data and, uh, and interpret it. That's a few hundred dollars charge right there. But still, that's a very expensive charge. And there was no way for me to know up front what I was getting into when I was prescribed that halter monitor. So I delved further into it and I looked and 
the Trump administration being aware um, at the time a few years ago that people were getting whacked by these bills had actually imposed a rule saying that hospitals have to have to post their price lists online for various procedures. So I went in there and it took some digging. I mean, good luck to you if you look on your local hospital's <laughs> website. It's in there somewhere, but they're not advertising. And the reason why was you can pull it up, look at any procedure. It's usually an Excel spreadsheet. Look at any procedure in there. There will be, in, uh, in the case of my hospital, over two dozen different price categories listed for each individual procedure or service, depending upon which company they negotiated a price with. Um, is it one or another variety of self-pay? Is it Medicare? Is it Medicaid? All of those have different prices attached. The system is completely broken. And the reason is, to get back to it, is we don't have health insurance. We have prepaid medical care. Well, we are incentivized to get as much for that premium dollar as we can. And the health insurance companies, obviously, are not our friends. They're spending somebody else's money on somebody else's health care. Their incentives are entirely different from ours. And then there's the providers. You have three parties, none of whom are responsible to each other directly. And it, and it breaks the system. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, as I was just talking about the, you know, the $12 disposable razor, uh, you know, five, six, eight times what it costs. We see these costs all the time. People talk about the, I don't know, the $15 aspirin that they get while they're in the hospital and things like that. And it's it's become almost memeable, you know, at that point. But the truth is, is that, like you said, uh, I mean, one of the good things that the Trump administration did was try to shine some light on this. But really what it shined the light on is that the system is fundamentally broken. Broken. Now, you mentioned something, and I have experienced this. I have experienced this in my own family. There's been some medications that have been prescribed for a family member in the past that are expensive um, and that work, that are very reasonable. The doctors have tried other medications that have not worked, yada, yada, yada. So they say, let's try this one. Uh, we get the first prescription through, uh, and it's this works wonderfully. Yeah, And then the next thing you know, we go to renew it, and the insurance company sends us a letter said, this is not medically necessary. Well, it was prescribed by a doctor. They've tried twelve other medicines or whatever, and it, and but it's it's not it's not like it's anything personal. This is all part of the modus operandi. The insurance companies, or as you say, the prepaid companies at this point, basically have a policy of just deny, deny, deny because they know that a certain subset will never challenge that. They'll just go on living their lives in pain or uncomfortable or not doing it or whatever. And so it's all part of this big game that they're playing at this point. Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, my wife is a pediatrician. She deals with this all the time. She has staffers who get on the phone with the insurance companies just to yell at them because, as you mentioned, the insurance companies are kind of counting on what we call scraping off some of the people along the way. They won't appeal. Therefore, the payment does not be made. And the company ends up saving, saving maybe 10, 15, 20. I mean, I'm guessing. I don't know how what percentage never actually uh, file that appeal and then never get their, uh, their bills covered. But the, the fundamental problem is that it doesn't matter when you're arguing between having a government uh, sponsor, you know, be the, uh, the single payer uh, of uh, health care or whether it's private insurance companies. Third-party care that isn't true insurance, that's prepaid, um, has bad incentives built in no matter who the payer is. And there have been a lot of studies on this. I mean, um, in the piece, I quoted Jeff Singer, who's a surgeon, and actually in Arizona right here, who's also a fellow at the Cato Institute. And I quoted the Center for Medical Economics. They pointed out that uh, you know, around 1960, more than half of our medical bills we paid personally. 
And back then, health insurance was more like health, health insurance, and it picked up what insurance picks up, which is the unexpected. I mean, if you know that you're going to be going to doctor's appointments over the course of the year for checkups and that you have regular medication, you can budget for these things. They're not unexpected expenses. If you cross the street, get hit by a bus, that's what health insurance is for. Right. And what we have is not that. I used to have it. But I mean, back when I first started working, I went out and bought catastrophic care, which is true health insurance. And I had an HSA attached to it. Um, back then, they were experimental. But I got that. I was very happy with it because I had... I mean, and I literally called it getting hit by a bus insurance. Uh, that was largely uh, banned under the Obama, under Obamacare. They wanted to uh, get rid of high, you know, a low premium, um, high deductible insurance, which is actual real insurance, because they thought it was leaving too many people paying their own bills. Except that people paying their own bills is the problem. It's the solution. You want people to be responsible right. for doing their own shopping. Right. If you're, yeah, if you're doing your own shopping, you check the price. You ask, how much will this cost? That's too much. Is there an alternative? If there's not an alternative, can we work out a payment plan? You negotiate. And then the people you're negotiating with adjust their prices accordingly. We don't have a market for healthcare in this country. When you can't even find the price, because depending upon who negotiated with the, um, the hospital or the provider, and you've got two dozen different categories of prices that may range across um, you know, the board for the same procedure from hundreds of dollars to thousands of dollars, depending upon the negotiation. It's impossible to know going in what things are going to cost you. And that's not a true market. It's broken. And it doesn't matter whether it's government or whether it's private who's the ultimate third-party payer. Well, and you talk about, I mean, this disincentivizes private citizens from doing their due diligence, finding the cheapest insurance. And in some ways, it's a disconnect because some people like, I've got a scraped knee, I'll go to the ER and it's a $12,000 and I don't have to pay it. So it's fine. So it's in some ways, it's overcare for things that are minor or hypochondriac, you know, hypochondriac kind of things, or it's just, they just throw their hands up and like, <clears throat> it's fine. It doesn't care. And it pushes the cost onto everybody else. I mean, one of the biggest complaints about Obamacare, of course, is that it made, um, it made all the younger people all of a sudden who wouldn't generally need insurance, maybe except for something catastrophic because they're generally young and healthy. All of a sudden they were required to buy insurance and it was breaking the bank and they were having to pay for people who, who at that point needed insurance because it was all leveling out. I mean, it was, it was insane to watch this whole thing go on. And, uh, and again, it's kind of that do-gooder mentality of, well, let the government come in and kind of smooth the waters and make everything equal. And, but the problem is, of course, governors, gov government picking winners and losers in this case. And then on top of that, you have these third-party providers, the healthcare care uh, companies, the insurance companies and everything else who are strong-arming, creating conglomerates, you know, buying, consolidating, doing all this kind of stuff, and then dictating to you what kind of health care you're going to get. Oh, absolutely so. I mean, you you lose control when you pay that premium, but even as you're trying to maximize what you're getting out of it. I mean, what Obamacare did with trying to force younger, healthier payers into the market um, in, in order to amortize expenses across them was perverse because they were low cost, largely because they did not need medical care, therefore did not buy insurance, therefore weren't driving costs for the rest of the system. Once you force them in, though, 
they don't necessarily stay low cost. They are paying premiums. Their incentives are the same as the rest of us. They want to get the most bang for that buck. If you're going to pay the right. premium anyway, why not get out of it what you can? And they stop being so low cost. You're not going to amortize as much across them as you, as you, uh, as you thought you were ahead of time because they're no longer the same group behaving the same way as they did in the past. Jake. You mentioned earlier. I'm sorry, go ahead. I guess say, we're coming up on the break. Uh, hold that thought. You mentioned earlier. Just keep that in mind. Uh, yep. We're going to be back. JD2 Chili is our guest. Reason Magazine. We're talking about healthcare. care. Uh, this is a huge component of our costs uh, that you face every every day, every month. you got to pay that premium. And even still on top of that, you're like, oof, anytime you go somewhere, how much more is it going to cost on top of that? The Michael Duke Show continues. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Running on 100% pure beard power. Oh, also some coffee. We dip our beard in coffee. Ha, <laughs> nice beard. The Michael Duke Show. JD Tuchilli, our guest here on the program. And uh, I got to tell you, uh, one thing I discovered, and I don't know if you guys have these down in um, in Arizona, uh, uh, JD, but one when the company that I work for uh, back in the day when Obamacare came in, because I had really good health insurance. When, when Obamacare came in, I had really decent health insurance. And my premium went from I think I was paying about $700 a month. Now, I was a family of seven, right? My wife and I and five kids. So it was a, it was a significant, it was about 700 bucks a month, 750 bucks a month, which was, you know, that's a chunk, but it was great health insurance for everybody. Uh, and after having that hundred and something thousand dollar bill for my first kid, because she was premature, I was like, okay, we'll make sure we get all this. Uh, but when Obamacare came in, uh, all I could find, the closest that I could find was like $3,000 a month for something comparable. Uh, luckily, the company that I worked for, although they couldn't provide us health care anymore because of the exorbitant cost, it was tripling their cost, they did plug us into what they call a health insurance broker. And that's somebody who professionally advocates for you and goes out and finds you, works on, does logs into your marketplace account, does all this kind of stuff at no cost to you. They're actually paid by the insurance companies. They receive us some kind of percentage. That has been the best thing that kept me out of jail. The first three years of Obamacare, that definitely kept me out of jail because I was so frustrated and so, and, but even still <clears throat> to this day, uh, you know, it's one of those things where if I have a fight with the insurance company, I just zip off a letter or an email to the lady and say, Please fix this. But it is so frustrating. It happens all the time. Not medically necessary. Not medic. The doctor prescribed the damn thing. Of course it's medically necessary. Are you kidding me? It's not like, I mean, I know they're practicing medicine, but I mean, when we've gone through, you can look at her at the history list and say, oh, they tried this one. They tried this one. They tried this one. Now they're trying this one. But like you said, it's that scrape off effect. And that just, oh, it irritates me so badly. It's maddening. It's absolutely maddening. And they count on that. And they don't have to actually have a rationale in mind. All they know is that if they send out enough rejection letters, a few of them will stick. And that's a big savings across a large system. They're going to save a lot of money. So you have to push back. I mean, even if you just, I did a data drop on them. I printed out a bunch of pages that said that, yeah, in my case, it is medically necessary. I highlighted some stuff from my doctor's visit summary and I mailed it off to them. And they get to, they now get to leaf through about 20 or 30 pages of stuff. 
Um, you know, because I just printed out as much as I could. Why not? <laughs> but I mean, you get into this game. <laughs> I could I could play this too. Let me drop Wikipedia on you and see what happens, yep. right? Yeah. Yeah. But make it hard for them because they're trying to make it easy. They're trying to save money. And if I make that a tough fight, they'll move on to somebody else. That's what you know, that's what everybody should do. If you get a rejection, just I mean, drop anything. Drop a drop a you know, piece of plate metal and an envelope and mail it to them. But just make it hard. Right, exactly. No, this is definitely a frustrating thing. And and now that we've come out of now we're now that we're in Obamacare light, I guess we would say, because yeah. the tax mandate and everything else has come down. Um, it's still I mean, that's still the thing. whole thing is fundamentally broken. I mean, I talked about this whole idea. You know, the states created these bulwarks in between each other to where maybe there's an insurance company in, I don't know, Louisiana that could offer me a type of health insurance that would be even better for me. But because they've got these strictures now uh, between states and all these firewalls and everything, I mean, we've got to have some reform in that regard so that we have an actual free market. In Alaska, there's literally two choices. I mean, the, the third one, there was three, but it got a, kind of got in trouble. I don't even know if they're even offering health insurance in the state anymore. So there's literally two different companies, one that services mostly government employees and the other one that's private sector. So when you got those kind of choices, you, you, you're not it's getting, no choice. yeah, there's no choice. I mean, it's a captive market. It's a seller's market. They can do kind of whatever they want. Now, I don't really have much to complain with. I'm probably one of those few people who, because of Obamacare, I ended up over the course of eight or nine years, eventually my premiums actually came down to less than what I was paying. But there's a ton of people out there who are paying actually more and continue to do so. It's, it's, it's astonishing. Um, and I talked too long, so we're coming up on the break. All right, so here we go. We're going to jump back into this JD2 Chili. We're going to talk with him about maybe potential solutions, and uh, we're going to finalize the article, and maybe we'll spend the last uh, segment talking with him about some of the other stuff he's been writing about, which is also fascinating. Uh, I love talking to JD. So let's uh, let's get back into it here. The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Like and share, like and follow, subscribe, ring the bell, do all the youtube things. Let's go. Public enema number one. Oh, wait, sorry. Uh, enemy. Public enemy number one, which uh, makes more sense. On the other hand, he's a little bit of a pain in the uh, Michael Duke show. That's not what the doctor said, okay? I mean, I've got been cleared on that. It's not... Welcome back to the program. It is the Michael Duke show. Uh, we are talking with J.D. Tuchilli from Reason Magazine. Uh, he's an editor out there that writes on a variety of topics. His most recent piece, or one of his, I guess his second most recent piece, put out just a couple of days ago, which, by the way, if you'd like to subscribe to his newsletter called The Rattler, Rattler, because he's from Arizona and it's snake-like, uh, he, uh, he, he, I, that's how I got it. I got it right in my email, uh, right there in my inbox, uh, and you can get all of his stories concise and condensed and placed right into your email Every time he puts something out. Anyway, this article is called Private Insurance and Government Programs Drive Up Healthcare Costs. And basically, uh, it basically eliminates any concept that this might be a free market thing. So, J.D., I mean, like you said, this has changed only in the last 35 or 40 years has this thing really changed over. And it's been kind of an accelerated change with Obamacare. But we could stop this. We could go back. We've talked about things, like I mentioned earlier, about direct primary care or cash payments. I mean, there's some people like that. Now that there's no longer a mandate, there's a big push for things like that because 
it's cheaper, it's better for them, it gives them more flexibility, they get direct care from their doctor who's involved in the process, and overall, it's incredibly cheaper. I mean, we've we you talked about the spreadsheet worth of prices, but generally speaking, if you pick through all of those, you'll find that even through all the numbers, that the cash pay is still the lowest component, some buy by a multiple factor, and you you discovered that when you looked at this. Absolutely. If you look through there, you'll find that cash pay for self-payment is the cheapest. And even that, a lot of people don't realize that even that is negotiable. You can always say, hey, that's pretty stiff. It's still negotiable. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's the way it, the system has to go, is that in health insurance should be actual insurance. It should not be mandated to cover everything under the sun just because there's a constituency that thinks that would be awesome. You should be able to buy it across state borders. And it should cover, well, if you want to go shopping for something that's more comprehensive, great. But really, it should be for the unexpected. Um, the system worked a lot better when the majority of, of uh, costs were shouldered by the people using the health care. If you're going in for checkups, you know you're going to go in for checkups, budget for it. If you have an ongoing condition that you can, that you can accommodate, budget for that. Most of us can budget for the regular um, demands of life, just like you pay for your car maintenance, and then you've got insurance in case you run into a tree. Um, that's what we need. Is, you know, If you get hit by a bus or you have something that's unexpected, insurance should cover that. Direct primary care you mentioned, it's awesome. My uh, primary care physician is direct primary care. Does not handle insurance, has no office staff to speak of. There's one tech in there um, who also does uh, the billing because the billing involves sending me a bill and that's it. They won't talk to the insurance company. <laughs> I want to run it by the insurance company. That's on me. Right. Uh, but it's very affordable. And I go in there and actually, uh, I mean, the reason I had a halter monitor is I'm an AFib. And the reason I know I'm an AFib is because I was in there and I told my doc, my resting heart rate seemed to have jumped by 20 points. And he said, that's weird. And he walked across the hallway and he set me up for an EKG and he said, wow, you're an AFib. <laughs> and that's how we knew. Shocking. Uh, but if we had, but that's because he was direct primary care. We had time for an appointment. He had the equipment in his office. It's not that expensive, all things considered. Right. Whereas if I'd had to do it through the regular system, I would have had to been set up with an appointment. Months later, I would have gone in. I still wouldn't have had it yet, probably. Uh, and then I get a massive bill at the end of it. Whereas this was not an extra charge. It was covered by my regular direct primary care fee. I love that. At reason, we have covered the surgical centers of Oklahoma, who basically just have a price list. They don't go through insurance either. It's not direct primary care because it's not an ongoing relationship. But you go in there, you check the menu of services. Your, your, your physician said, you know, your specialist says you need this procedure. You go there and you know upfront what it's going to cost you. You can budget for that. You can plan ahead of time. So this sort of thing, that's where the solution lies, is where you go in, you go shopping as an individual, as a patient and as a consumer, because we're both. And then you talk with the provider and you deal one-on-one -on -one and you end up with an actual marketplace. And then you buy insurance that's actual insurance to cover only the unexpected. Right. Catastrophic. Somebody, uh, Donna, in the, ha in the chat room says, true health insurance should be just like auto insurance, including incentives to take care of yourself. Yeah. You're a yep. good you're a good driver. You've got zero points on your license. You know, all that kind of stuff. You get a better rate. So if you take care of yourself and you're healthy and you don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's the same kind of thing. This also branches out into something you don't cover in the article, but I think is very interesting, is that we've seen in this country, uh, really over the last 15 years is when I first, probably 15 years ago, I first started here hearing about it is this idea of medical tourism. There's people who are just like, nope, I'm going to go. I had a friend go to um, 
Thailand to have a hip replacement. And he went to a place that looked like a five-star resort. He had his hip replaced. They wheeled him down the hall from the operating room into a suite that looked like a five-star resort suite. His wife was there. She could go down and hang out by the pool while he recovered and did all this stuff. And the cost was about a quarter of what it would have been here in the United States from doctors who were trained at like the Mayo Clinic or something. I mean, these these people are all American trained doctors doing this. We hear about, you know, the dental work in Mexico and other things. I mean, it incentivizes those kind of things because we just can't seem to get our poop in a group on this and find a way to make it affordable for everyone. The answer for making it affordable for everyone is everybody pays their way, right? Exactly so. And the solution is not leaving one third party payer standing, which would be the government. That's what you talk about with Medicare for all or, uh, you know, the national health system or something like that. That actually gets rid of whatever discipline is imposed by having competing third party payers, leaves one standing. And then you're stuck with nobody to appeal to. Because right now, if I get angry at my health insurance company, at least maybe I can switch over to another one. They've still got to keep people happy because people can do that. They can look at another provider. Um, if you've got one third-party payer standing, you've got all of the problems of a third-party payer system. You've got it monopolized and you've got no place else to look. You're just going to get worse and worse going from there. So yeah, we need to go to taking responsibility for our own healthcare costs and having only insurance coverage for things that we absolutely need and get rid of the mandated coverages, uh, the things that are politically popular, politi you know, the, uh, all that kind of care that's got a constituency, but which adds costs. Get rid of that and just get back to a market. I mean, I think you unknowingly hit on this when you were talking about your own direct primary care doctor is that he doesn't have a whole, you know, he doesn't have to have a medical coder and an insurance specialist and all these people on staff. All these things create these huge bureaucracies. I mean, here in Alaska, two thirds or excuse me, one third of our of our uh, population, we have 700 and something thousand people, 270,000 of them are on some form of medicaid or something like that so we've got doctor's offices that are full of people who are coding and doing all this kind of stuff and that all that stuff has a cost all that stuff not only does the government bloat it because it's government but the regulation and the things like that require all this extra bureaucracy which again just continues to add to the cost when you look at some of these direct pay prices compared to what the insurance company or medicaid or medicare are paying i mean we're talking in some cases it's you know, it's a th it's a three hundred percent increase. Like you, you'd pay five hundred yeah. if it was cash. It's two thousand if it was paid through by insurance or whatever. I mean, it is it's unbelievable. And yet, we've been conditioned to just oh, well, this is how we do it. Well, this is how we do it. And and uh, it's it's frightening. It is frightening. And that overhead is a huge deal. I mean, from my wife's office, the compliance costs were what finally drove her out of business. She used to be independent. She now works for a hospital system. Um, she just couldn't do it anymore. And uh, she couldn't get Medicaid to pay its bills. Um, and that was more compliance costs there. And, uh, you know, on top of a big uh, payer who she couldn't negotiate with, refusing to actually cut the checks. So then you end up forcing it into a consolidated system with less and less options, fewer choices. And the compliance costs are insane. Uh, right. Regulatory costs are insane. And, and this is not working. 
Right. Well, and the consolidation, that's the other thing uh, that we should talk about briefly. Uh, Not only the consolidation of third-party payers, insurance companies and things like that. We've seen conglomerates and and, uh, what do they call them? uh, the 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 health organizations where they come inside your your H, H, HPO or whatever it is, you know they've consolidated there. Then you've got hospitals that are consolidating, all coming under one banner of of a single company, and all of those again they almost conspire against the people because there are fewer and fewer choices and the doctors, they get the squeeze, like you said, compliance costs and everything else. And I think that's been one of the reasons I've talked to several doctors over the last 10 years who finally said the same thing your wife did, which is like, this is nuts. We can't take, and a lot of them aren't taking new Medicaid patients or new Medicare patients because they just don't want to deal with it. And a lot of them retired because of that. And and there's fewer people going, who wants to invest 10, 12 years of your life or whatever it is to become a doctor and then have to deal with all that heartache on the end. I mean, sure. Oh, yeah, you make great money. Well, sometimes you do. Right. And sometimes it's uh, it's a total it's a total headache. So is the answer in the long run, uh, as you mentioned earlier, and I think Brian in the chat room is saying direct primary care coupled with an HSA would make a ton of sense if we can get that. It works for my family. I would highly recommend it. And it says, anyway, so long as it's legal, right? Right now it's kind of a carve out in the system, but I think it's a great way to go. Um, if it's available to people, I think looking at a direct primary care, shop around for who's available. There are more and more of them all the time. And the HSAs are awesome. Roll that over. And by the way, HSAs can be used as a backdoor retirement account too. So you're, you're right. also saving for the future. They're a great idea. Uh, I think that's a good way to go. And then shop and do as much um, of the price checking as you can up front. If you can't do that, uh, you're stuck with the current system. But that's at least a step in the direction of the solution. Uh, HSAs, by the way, for those of you who don't know, health savings accounts. They're carve-outs that have been around for a while. Health savings. Used to have these flex accounts that you could use and everything. But anytime things started to work, it was like the government would change it. I had a flex spending account for about two years, three years. We could buy you know, prescriptions with it. We could do all this kind of stuff. It was money that was coming out of my paycheck, but then they said, Oh no, that's, that's working too well. We can't do that anymore. We shouldn't do that. Um, all right. Um, so final thoughts on this one, JD, what do we do? Uh, do we, is that just go out and explore and see if you can find something like that or what? As individuals? Yeah. I mean, as individuals go out, Look for direct primary care physicians, uh, use an HSA, and uh, try and shop for yourself to control your costs. But as a society, and obviously this is always the harder part, uh, but as a society, we have to step away from this consolidation of uh, healthcare, the separation of patients from the costs, uh, and, and the idea that health coverage should be comprehensive because that's the problem. And it leads us as we try and fix and patch each problem that the third party payer system causes, we step further and further towards a path of total consolidation and real problems from which it gets harder to extract ourselves. So we need a market system. We need individual choice. We need competition that applies across so many areas of life. And it certainly applies to healthcare. Uh, all right, JD Tuchilli, uh, Donna says Kevin, Representative Kevin McCabe has a direct primary care bill into the system right now, HB 47. Maybe we can get something like that put together here. Uh, although you can work out some deals with your doctor. Uh, I mean, I know I've done that in the past as well. It, you know, it doesn't necessarily require it. Um, JD, can you stick with us? I want to talk with about one more thing on the other side of the break. Are you good to go? Uh, sure, absolutely. Uh, okay, good. JD Tuchilli is our guest uh, from Reason Magazine. 
Uh, he's a senior editor over there. Uh, writes all kinds of good stuff. I want to talk a little bit about search warrants and the border. And you're here in Alaska like, what does that matter? Well, it's interesting when you look at the actual powers and what happens with that. Uh, but it looks like it might be changing. We'll see what happens here. We're going to be back with more in just a moment. The Michael Duke Show. Common Sense Radio. Broadcasting live through a series of tubes. Allowing all of these entities to provide streaming stuff going on on the the, the internet. Well, it's kind of hard to explain. Sorry. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. In the break with J.D. Tuchilli right now. Uh, And, yeah, I mean, it's, it's... Isn't it amazing, J.D., how we down on the street level of a lot of this stuff can see the solutions and yet the politicians can't or maybe won't. Maybe it's willful blindness. Maybe it's a constituency pool because, hey, let's face it, a lot of these third party payers and the healthcare systems and the hospitals, they donate a lot of money to keep things at the status quo, right? They donate a lot of money. Look, this is an incentives problem, just like we've got bad incentives in, in health care as we have it now. We've also got lousy incentives in politics. Uh, a lot of, I think, uh, elected officials or government officials overall understand that third party payer in health care and a lot of other things that the government does do not work. They breed problems. Then you end up patching a problem you already created and create a new problem down the road. But the thing is telling people, hey, the solution is actually to give you more responsibility is a hard sell. It gives politicians less leverage over the constituencies. Whereas promising, I know you're unhappy. I'm going to pass a law that, and we're going to give you more free stuff. Well, it's not free. It's going to then going to be hidden in your taxes or padded onto the debts the government accumulates. But uh, we're going to give you more free stuff. That gives you leverage over a constituency. You essentially buy votes that way. You don't buy votes by saying you need to take more responsibility for your life. That's a that's hard truth, but that's not how you get elected to office. <laughs> no, it's not. And of course, then we have the people who appoint to places like Canada and Britain, the National Health Service and the Canadian Health Service and things like that. And they're like, oh, well, this is what we need. But again, government interventionalism, you know, mandatory. I mean, they talk about the death boards, but it's not just death boards. It's like trying to get an MRI or a CAT scan in Canada yeah. is like a multi-year process in some ways and things like that. So, I mean, obviously the answer here is, again, more free market, making people more responsible. But I agree with you. It's hard. If you had to sit down and try and figure out, you know, when you say you got to take responsibility and go shop around, if I've got to pull up five screens with six different spreadsheets and figure out which doctor will do what, that does put more responsibility on me. And some people just like, I don't want to do that. Let me just pay for this insurance anyway. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you mentioned the Canadian healthcare system. That's not a solution to anything the U.S. has, you know, any of our problems. Uh, the safety valve for the Canadian healthcare system is the United States. People with a little bit of money cross the border, and you've got clinics in Detroit, Buffalo, uh, Seattle that deal with primarily with Canadians because they come across, they pay out of pocket, um, or they buy insurance that does it, um, and they get the the private pay healthcare in the U.S. that they can't get in Canada legally. Now that's the other safety valve is that you've got a lot of nudge, nudge, wink, wink private clinics up there that aren't by law supposed to be charging their patients, but the provincial governments knowing that they've got a backed up system, look the other way. And 
these uh, these places operate very openly now because right. they need them as a safety valve. There aren't enough CAT scans, there aren't enough MRIs. I was complaining before about health insurance companies scraping off costs by refusing payment for procedures that have already been performed. Can you imagine scraping off costs by kicking medical tests, treatment, you know, uh, uh, CAT scans, MRIs, chemotherapy, six months, a year, two years down the road, and kind of knowing that X percent of your patients will simply be dead before you have to deal with the actual procedure. Yeah. That's what Canadian, the Canadian system does. Yeah. So uh, healthcare costs, yeah, cost control can be brutal. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's why I said, I mean, it's a, it's a statistical fact that on a per capita basis, there are more diagnostic machines, MRIs, CAT scans, all that kind of stuff along the northern border of the United States and those towns that are right there next to the Canadian border by an order. I mean, it's like by two or three times what would you'd find in a normal area on a per capita basis. And it's because they're servicing all those Canadians who were coming down who were like, they said six months for a CAT scan. I think I have a tumor. Let's go. You know what I yep. mean? And and that's it, it's you hear these stories, but people still cling to that. Oh, it would be so much better if we were like them or Sweden or England or whoever. Uh, the problem is you don't have control. That's the thing. HMO. Thank you, Harold. That was what I was looking for was the HMO, Health Medical Organization. Anyway, um, yeah, it, it, this whole thing is just so crazy. But maybe... I don't know, with the rise of direct primary care and this kind of movement, I see that it's really gained some traction. And I, I'm i really happy to see that happen. And I'm hoping that more and more people will start to glom onto that. Yeah, that's a good direction to move in. Taking more responsibility for our own health care costs, just as we do for everything else. You wouldn't want the government paying for your meals. I mean, you can imagine what that would be like. So, uh, and, and I certainly don't, don't want the government covering my uh, auto repair costs because it would never happen then. Um, so we, sh we shouldn't hand over the care for our bodies. <laughs> or or they that's a, just a bad idea. They'd repair it with parts from the lowest bidder, lowest possible yeah. bidder. <laughs> and nobody. I didn't know you could make that out of pot metal. I know, really, exactly. <laughs> what do you mean we made this control arm out of plastic? Well, it was cheaper and lighter it, and recyclable, yeah. so it's important, you know. Uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's some crazy stuff. Well, I'm hoping that by pointing these things out, we'll get more and more people educated. And like I said, this direct primary care, and I'm hoping we can get it here in the state. We've, I've in the past have kind of worked that out with some of my providers as well, uh, where we just didn't put it through insurance and I just paid for it or I paid it monthly or whatever. And that's just sometimes what you got to do. That's, uh, it's, you got to do what you got to do. All right. JD Tuchilli, our guest, uh, Reason Magazine. We're going to talk a little bit about search warrants and border searches and uh, more here in just a moment, The Michael Duke Show. The Michael Duke Show. Not your daddy. Wait, sorry, not your daddy? Ooh, not your daddy's talk radio. <laughs> Whew, I was scared for a second. Thought we were going down. Here's Michael Dukes and the show. Nope, not your daddy, nor do I play one on TV. Well. I'm, I've already got five. I mean, I don't need any more. I'm not is, but it is. You're not your daddy's talk radio. We talk about all kinds of things that he will probably hate. We just finished up talking about healthcare. JD Tuchilli is our guest. He writes for Reason Magazine. He is a uh, former managing editor over there. Now he's a contributing editor. Uh, he wrote another article before this last one that I do want to touch on for just a minute. We don't have a whole lot of time, but I was, I got so incensed when I figured this out. Uh, most people don't understand that Border Patrol agents in this country, and I know Alaska may not be affected by that as, as many other things, but Border Patrol agents have this 
almost godlike power to be able to search a lot of stuff um, anywhere within, what is it, J.D., 75 or 100 miles of the border? 100 miles of the border. 100 miles of the border. And you don't realize how far that is until you actually see it on a map and you're like, whoa, 100 miles of the border. That pretty much encompasses, a. I mean, it's a huge thing. And they've been doing everything from seizing cell phones, copying them, taking data, using stingrays to triangulate positions and all this kind of stuff. And they've been abusing that authority for uh, quite a while now, but there is some good news. JD, give a, hit us hit us with what's going on here. Well, absolutely. I mean, specifically, this applies to people who are coming into the United States. If you're entering at a port of entry, that'll be an airport uh, in particular. But if you're driving um, into the U.S. from Canada on a road, or from or from Mexico on a road, if you're coming in off a ship. Um, Basically, you're not covered by the Fourth Amendment until border and you know until they are allowed back into the country formally. So Border Patrol insists, you know, Customs and Border Protection insists they have the right to search everything on you, including your electronic devices. And for years, they've been demanding access and refusing entry to American citizens to the United States unless they get hand over passwords to allow them to search and in many cases to clone the contents of laptops, cell phones which obviously gives them access to your life, all your emails on there, your text messages, any documents you have in there, including cloud storage in many cases. Uh, finally, you know, the courts have been letting them do this. And the courts have been explicitly saying that uh, there is no Fourth Amendment protection uh, expectations when you're entering the United States. That dates from old law that's trying to keep out spies, terrorists, and smuggled goods. And they apply that to the contents of your cell phone. There's finally a district judge in New York who says, uh, wait a minute, this goes way too far. These old precedents are about keeping a, you know crates full of contraband out. They're not about keeping your emails out. And in fact, they're ineffective at doing that because your emails are probably in the cloud anyway. You could have emailed them to yourself, you know, going right around border control. You can access them once you're in the country anyway. So there's nothing that's being kept out of the country right. by demanding access to cell phones. Right. And for for the first time, really, ever, um, well, actually, I should say we've been incrementally improving the, the standing of uh, electronic Fourth Amendment protections in recent years. But this is the first the first time a judge has explicitly said at the border, no, electronic devices are a step too far. You, um, you can't just demand that you have you know, to have access to electronic devices. You need a better excuse than you're not yet on the right side of the border. Right, exactly. And this wasn't just a onesie twosie kind of thing that was going on. They hit almost 45,000 people coming into U.S. citizens who basically were stripped of their rights, their Fourth Amendment rights. And like you said, they just said, well, you can't come in until you tell us what your password is. And so you got to, you got some naughty nudes on your phone or you've got sensitive documents from a legal case or whatever. We're going to doesn't matter. We're going to take them all. We'll look at them all. We'll take them all. We'll clone the phones, like you said, which for, I mean, my question was, if you want to just look through it and scroll through it, that's one thing. But to clone the whole phone, and in some cases, like you said, the cloud storage as well, that is, I mean, that's nothing but a glorified fishing expedition for anything that's going on. It's enormously powerful. I mean, think about that ability, you know, hand over your password or we'll make you sit in a corner until you do. Uh, on that bench right there. And that's they've literally done that. Um, so they make you hand over the password, they clone it, then they send you on your way. Now they can search through your records at their leisure. 
I mean, that's amazing. Think about all they need is storage capacity. Once right. it's cloned, they could take their time and then come back after you because they found something that they didn't like on your phone. And they've done this uh, investigating financial crimes. They've done this investigating child pornography. They've done this to journalists. The uh, videographer who made the, the award-winning documentary about Edward Snowden uh, was hit up to it with this way. She stopped bringing her laptop into the U.S. Uh, and would just access it, uh, the cloud on another machine in the U.S. because they searched her pretty much every time she came across the border. Right. And, and, and again, would lock her down and get her to do it. And people would say, well, it doesn't affect me because I don't travel outside the U.S. usually and everything else. Although coming from Alaska, I mean, who knows what they would, you know, how they would look at that. But the bottom line is, is that this is such a push on privacy that it needs to be it needs to be addressed. I mean, like you said, this this law, this whole idea of the border search exception, which is a U.S. Supreme Court case, you know, decision from long ago was basically for like we're looking for bootleggers. Right. We're looking for people, you know, running Canadian hooch down into the U.S. during prohibition or cocaine cartels that are bringing cocaine. That's what they're looking for. Physical goods. That's the kind of thing that it that that that, that search exemption is supposed to apply to. But the government, as government is wont to do, expands that to look at everything that they can possibly look at. And that that to me is, again, the spookiest part. You have no autonomy. You have no privacy in your own person or in your own electronic devices. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you extend these things that are really meant just to keep smuggled goods out. And I've got my own issues with with the idea of, uh, you know, tariffs and uh, smug and smuggling. I mean, I don't think smuggling is necessarily bad. But that's another conversation. But I mean, when you extend these precedents, uh, I live in Arizona within 100 miles of the Mexican border. I've been driving into state aid. I've been stopped and had my car searched by Border Patrol. Why? Because within 100 miles of the border, the Supreme Court says that you've got limited Fourth Amendment protections, not as limited as when you haven't quite entered the U.S. and you're at a border station. But still, they say that Border Patrol can stop you at will, search your car. And if you don't like it, you know what? That's too bad. People who have been who have given them lip have found their cars dismantled by the side of the road while they stand there watching. If they try to interfere, they get arrested. So uh, these extensions of laws and precedents that were meant to address the entry of contraband into the U.S. then extended just to give border control agents expanded authority over all areas of our lives is very dangerous. It's wide ranging and it can affect a lot more people than think. The majority of the U.S. population lives within 100 miles of the border. Think about that. So right. that's that's wide application of bad precedent. Yeah, no, exactly. If you do, if you look at it, you can see that if you put draw that 100 mile ring around the interior of the U.S., it runs through almost every major city in the U.S. Yep. And so, yeah, it gives them. And, and I've, I've seen some of these videos of some of these Border Patrol stops where people I mean, I'm like I'm 85 miles from the border and Border Patrol is here with a roadblock and they're checking every car. And I'm like what and and they said yeah don't talk back because they will drag you out of that car tase you and then tear your car apart i'm just like yep wow i mean that's that's insane that i could never do that i would be in jail that would just drive me absolutely crazy but that's the power that they have it is the power they've had and i've had it done to me and i've had it done to me when it was 110 degrees out and if you're if you want to get stuck on the side of the road watching your car be dismantled <laughs> that's how it's going to happen if you if you give them any lip so you smile, you hand over your ID, and you wish that you're having a better day. Yeah, no, it's crazy stuff. What are you working on now, JD? Last two minutes. What are you working on now that we should be looking forward to the end of this week, first part of next week? 
Oh, justice coming to Hunter Biden, of course. <laughs> uh, this plea deal that he's cut with the Justice Department over uh, his tax shenanigans and possession of a firearm uh, by a felon, which should be interesting. Uh, now, we don't know specifically uh, the terms of his, uh, of his sentence, but uh, the White House seems to be assuming it's not prison deal which would be unusual for both of these crimes. Yeah. So uh, hey, it's pretty clear that he got a sweet deal on this. Remember, it's not what you know, it's who you know uh, at that point. Exactly. Because, you know, any other felon in possession of a firearm, any other, you know, meth uh, user or whatever else, plus all the financial crimes, that would be, I mean, they would be like, yeah, sure, we'll make a deal with you. It'll be five to ten, and we'll see you when you're done. Uh, but this I is found, uh, yeah, go ahead. I, I found data from the U.S. Sentencing Commission that said that 96.7 percent of all felons caught in possession of a firearm get prison time. 96 <laughs> percent. So if he doesn't, yeah, yeah if, if he, he doesn't, that's quite the exception. Well, it's because apparently nobody wants to hear those 17 recordings where they were talking about deals. Apparently, Biden was actually on one of the calls or two of the calls, or they don't want any of this. They wanted to get this thing under the rug as soon as possible. So Anyway, it must be good to be king as far as that goes. Uh, JD2 Chili, Reason Magazine. I look forward to reading that. You could find him over at Reason.com. And, of course, JD, the Rattler, get, just get signed up, right? Just get signed up. It'll come to your mailbox. Every single time. I love it. Uh, that's why I love doing it. I always search my mail first thing in the morning and do all my reading from Reason Magazine. JD2 Chili, thank you so much. Uh, hold the line for just a second. Folks, we're out of time. we got more coming up. Justin Ruffridge, Julie Colomb will be joining us in hour two. It is the Michael Duke Show. Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Dang, son. I just can't imagine having some guy standing over my window saying, license and papers. I'm just, I'd be... <laughs> I, I won't drive Interstate 8 anymore for that reason. It's just maddening. Uh, almost every time I'm on that highway, I get pulled over by Border Patrol. Really? It's just like, yeah. it's a it's a common everyday thing. It's not like a special occasion. It's like they've got roadblocks up all the time. They have them up pretty much all the time. They move, they, but they're in the middle of nowhere. And there's not, I mean, it's Arizona. There's no alternative roads unless you want to go cross country. And if you do that, of course, they chase you down anyway. Um, they And they have full reign to do it. You've got no grounds to complain. It's it's just insane the amount of power that's put in those kind of things. And again, a lot of times based on precedents that are nearly 100 years old. You know, like I said, some of this stuff is like Prohibition era stuff that they were trying to, uh, you know, they were trying to, uh, to, to get past and, and get through. Well, my friend, um, I'm hoping that you, I'm hoping that you win your fight with your insurance company. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. And, uh, and I think you probably will. Like you said, uh, you know, yeah. if you printed out 400 pages and sent them a novel and said, this is it, read it all. Uh, and let me know. Uh, and uh, it, it, uh, you know, it's frustrating, but you're fighting the good fight and I appreciate you bringing this kind of stuff up for us. Thank you so much for being part of it. Hey, thanks for having me on. I really do appreciate it. It's always, it's always a good conversation, my friend. I always enjoy these, and I look forward to it. Uh, thanks for coming on. Thanks. You take care. All right. You too. Uh, JD Tuchilli, our guest, uh, Reason Magazine, uh, part, of the, uh, part of the program for today. Okay, hour two is about to jump on board, and we're going to be joined by uh, Representative Justin Ruffridge and Representative Julie Colomb are both going to be joining us, and we're going to be talking with them about uh, the budget, the vetoes, 
the potential for a special session for veto override next session and uh, the cancellation of capital projects in their districts. And what did that affect and what were their thoughts on it? Uh, the governor has still, as I mentioned earlier, given no reason why he canceled the capital projects for people who voted against the bill, the budget bill, uh, which, again, is kind of is kind of weird. Uh, and, uh, and still really no reasoning behind it. So we want to talk to a few people who were part of that, uh, and both Julie Colomb and Justin Ruffridge, uh, were members that had, uh, capital projects in their districts, uh, 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 submarined by the governor and vetoed by the governor. So we're going to get into that here in just a moment. Turn that off. There you go. There you go. Uh, let me get caught up in the chat room. I have been so busy this morning. We really haven't had much of a chance. I have caught a few of the comments as you heard me read them off to people. Uh, Gary said, we lived in Canada for five years and flew back to the U.S. for all care. Can take six months to see a doc, a year for surgery that's not an emergency. It's a poor system. Unless you live there, no one knows how bad. Uh, I, I, that's what I've heard for people who have actually been there, done that, got the T-shirt. Uh, Kathy says she had a colonoscopy last year at Homer. The hospital billed Medicare $7,700. Medicare paid eighteen. dollars I was billed six ninety, dollars And that's part of the problem is this artificial inflation that we see in a lot of these pricings. Um, and that's, again, part of the problem that we said. Jeffrey kind of sums it up, talks about the medical industrial complex. And, I mean, I think it is. There's a, there, is a, there is a kind of a corollary effect when you get third-party payers, hospital systems, and everything else, and then they are lobbying to keep things the same or make them even better for themselves. And the person who ends up paying in the end, of course, is the patient and the uh, taxpayer because there is no, uh, you know, th there's just, there's no, no other choice. Now they're starting to be. Again, the direct primary care, health savings accounts, and everything else, it is uh, a good opportunity. Um, again, Donna mentioned the fact that health insurance uh, could be uh, should be run like auto insurance, including incentives to take care of yourself. Um, I'm going through here, seeing if there's anything else that I missed that was a big, bad change. Um, nope. Okay. Uh, hey, don't forget tomorrow, one of the things that I didn't get a chance, we don't, we're not going to be able to cover a lot of headlines today, but tomorrow... <clears throat> In uh, the Kenai, uh, that retired district court judge from Homer, Margaret Murphy, is set to appear for an arraignment facing a charge of perjury, which is a Class B felony under Alaska law. And this is in in part due to that uh, the whole David Haig case and the grand jury bringing this indictment forward on her. And I know that Haig has been asking for people to show up at the courthouse in support to show the not just the system, that people support, you know, kind of this transparency in government, but also to show backing to the uh, jurors of the grand jury who will be there as well so that they know that the public supports them. Because this was kind of, I mean, this was kind of a hanky deal, you know, especially after the justices in the Supreme Court and everybody else tried to shut down the grand jury and its investigation on that kind of stuff. So uh, that's going on tomorrow. Um, you can watch it on uh, the the court stream. They're going to be streaming it on the courts, and you could also be there. It's going to be Friday, 10 a.m. at the uh, uh, Kenai Courthouse, I guess, down there. So if you want to go show up, that wouldn't be necessarily a bad thing to show your support for that kind of stuff. 
Uh, all right. Um, looks like we now have both guests uh, on the uh, in the green room, ready to go. Uh, this will be fun. We haven't done a we haven't done a, a three party guest system here in a while. So let's pull everybody into the thing and say good morning. We've got Julie Colom and Representative Justin Ruffridge. Good morning, folks. How are you? Good morning. Hey, thanks for coming on board. I appreciate it. Uh, we are about forty five seconds from re, uh, rejoining the radio and starting the hour. So. If you guys are all coffee, Justin does not look like he's coffeeed up. Justin, there you go. See, he's like, he was just like, my God, I hate this thing. I mean, it, you know, it's all good. It's all good, baby. Uh, so we're ready to talk about uh, budgets, vetoes, capital projects. Uh, what does the future look like? So uh, we appreciate you guys hanging out with us. We're going to be right back to you. So don't go anywhere. I just wanted to test your audio. Uh, put them both back in the green room. Here we go. The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Hour two is right now. Let's do it. Put that thing back in its holster. We haven't gone anywhere. I don't understand. Check out the MichaelDukesShow.com for information on how to get access to the podcast. Welcome to the party, pal. The, the Michael Dukes Show. The greed and the entitlement is astounding to me. What more could you want from a low-budget radio program? This is a dumpster fire. That was just BS. It is time to get a new perspective. We know just what you need, and we've got just the cure. Open wide and prepare for a steaming hot cup of freedom. I just don't fathom it. The Michael Dukes Show, streaming live across the world. Yep, live around the world on the internet at MichaelDukesShow.com, where you'll find links to the audio-only live stream, to the podcast, to the uh, social media sites where we simulcast the radio show every day on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, and broadcasting across the state of Alaska on this, your favorite radio station, and or FM translator. Welcome to Hour 2 of the Big Radio Show. Just finished up with J.D. Tuchilli from Reason Magazine. If you missed that, it was a good discussion on healthcare. That'll be back in Hour 1. You could do it on the podcast or go back and watch the live stream on Facebook, and you could see all that. Hour 2, though, we're focusing now back onto state business, and we're talking about the governor's uh, vetoes of the budget. Very contentious issues over the whole course of the session. Then the governor took his sweet time, finally laid the vetoes out, and I thought vetoed some of the stuff that should have been vetoed. But then, uh, in a surprise move, also vetoed a bunch of the capital projects for legislators, strictly for legislators, who had voted against the budget. And it was not a press conference. There was no questions asked, didn't answer, didn't give any justification. Not that he's required to, but probably should. And so I thought this would be an interesting time to talk with some of the folks who are affected by this. Uh, I invited Justin Ruffridge on, and he in turn uh, roped in uh, Representative Julie Colomb to come on board as well, which I'm excited about. It's been a while since we've talked to her. So let's get into this three-way conversation and see what's going on. We welcome them both to the program this morning as we uh, as we kick things off. Good morning, folks. Thanks for coming on board this morning. Good morning, morning Michael. Um, so I guess we're going to do this, uh, you know, we're going to do a little bit of round robin here on this. First and foremost, let's talk a little bit about the session. 
uh, because I don't think I've discussed the session, really the recap with either of you. Um, this was tough. We knew going in, especially those of us who are smaller government folks who were like, would like to see some more reductions, would like to see us live within our means. We knew this was going to be tough just based on the election and the makeup and, and the leadership of you know votes and the organization. We knew it was going to be tough, but in some ways it was even tougher than I expected. Um, what were your thoughts on, uh, uh, on everything? And, uh, let's uh, start off with, uh, Justin here. Give us your thoughts on how it all went down and and your you know your view of the session as a total give us a recap uh well thank you uh, and thanks for being here this morning appreciate the opportunity to to come on uh the program today and i did miss hour one which i'm kind of sad about because uh insurance is uh something i like to uh like to talk about because it's uh, a place where we really have a lot of work to do um and it's kind of my my wheelhouse, so I'll right. go back and listen to that later. Yeah. But that's why we make um, the, that's why we make the podcast, right? You can go listen <laughs> to it. We can go listen to it while you're tootling around town. All right, exactly. But no session was, uh, you know, a lot of uh, I would say it was a roller coaster for me. A lot of lessons learned on uh, what uh, how the sausage is made, I guess. In in Juno, um, there was some surprises. I think during the budget process and. Uh, you know, Representative Cologne was a little more engaged in the finance side of things. But, uh, you know, I watched firsthand how we uh, even tried to do little little cuts to things. Um, and that was uh, not really the uh, that was not really the uh, time or the place to do that. Um, we definitely uh, had some some relationship uh, issues, I think, with the House and the Senate. That was a uh, uh an interesting you know dynamic to watch um and i think that in the end kind of came down to um you know what we ended up seeing happening with the budget at the end which was the the senate giving it to us on the last day of session and having to make some uh some decisions really quickly in a lot of cases without being able to uh you know take take time and and look through things and make sure that uh you know you you went through the process as a whole um, for me personally, I felt like I uh, had a good opportunity uh, to to get engaged in some things that I thought were important, introduce some bills that I thought were important, uh, increasing correspondence school funding would be one, uh, repealing our education tax credit sunset, and then I passed a couple of bills as well. Um, so I think there's uh, there's some ups and downs to to the to the process, and uh, it's been a good good experience for the first year, uh, really have enjoyed actually getting to know a lot of the legislators. Uh, the freshman class has been fun to work with and really engaging. And, um, you know, we, we've had, uh, we've had, a, had a good experience, I think, thus far and, uh, looking forward to, uh, continuing it in January. I think you're almost being too kind when you talk about the time frame, uh, not getting much of a chance to look at it. I mean, they literally dropped the damn thing on you five hours and 20 minutes before the end of the session. Uh, not, you know, not really much of a chance to look at anything, but I appreciate your recap on it. Let's go over to Representative uh, Cologne. Uh, Julie, I mean, your thoughts. Again, both of you fresh and new and looking at this. I know that you are a numbers gal and you were down in the weeds and looking at all this kind of stuff. And both of you, and I'm going to get your comments on this as well, uh, were quoted as saying having some kind of harsh words at the very end for some of the shenanigans that went on from the Senate. So let's uh, but let's talk about your recap and 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 what the session was like to you and your thoughts. Yeah, I would uh, concur with a lot of what uh, Justin said. I 
when I w went to Juno, um, I had a very different picture of what I would be working on and kind of how things would go. So I did make a lot of adjustments. Um, obviously, sitting on finance was a fire hose of information. And so those first, uh, I would say the first six weeks to two months, I was immersed in budget books. And so there was a lot, I think there was a lot going on in the session that maybe I wasn't aware of because I was running three subcommittees and pretty hefty ones, um, public safety, education and administration. And so for me, I like I went to Juno to see what I can contribute to make government more efficient, cut the spending. And so my focus on the session has mainly been operating. Uh, I was waiting for the capital budget, uh, but that didn't actually come. And so my focus, although I did have some bills that I was running and there were some issues that I were I thought were important that I was working on, um, I was basically crunching numbers all the time. And so the cuts that I, you know, when I came on your show and I think I had been on the subcommittee, I think I'd been here maybe a month when I came on the last time I was here, um, that I had uh, suggested some cuts and they, to me, were very low hanging fruit. They were pretty reasonable, common sense things that we could um, cut from the budget. And uh, as Justin said, was not well received. And so I kind of had to adjust and I knew that it was gonna be an uphill climb to, uh, as a freshman, I guess, uh, try to make any substantial cuts. So um, I think overall, I mean, I, I, I would agree that, have the freshmen have been working really well together on both sides of the aisle i i don't see um i i i just think that having that influx of like a new set of eyes has been good for juno um but it did it came with a lot of conflicts and so um that's expected and you know we had such a substantial number of new people that you know you're you have a uh 40 people trying to readjust with personalities and different priorities and different ways of uh, looking at things. And so that took, you know, I, I had a lot of lessons and, and learned a lot of things the first uh, session for sure. Uh, I was surprised by the process towards the end, um, but I don't know, well, I guess that's a freshman thing, but if I had been here before, I, I didn't anticipate that part of it. But Well, uh, it was unprecedented. So, I mean, I can understand not anticipating because that was an unprecedented move to hold the budget to the very last hour of the of the session. So I could, I could understand that. You, you mentioned, uh, of course, you went down there with the idea of, again, finding efficiencies, making government more efficient, making those cuts. I would say that the majority of my listeners are in the cuts camp. I mean, that's what we want, right? We want to cut the size and scope of government. Um, and we don't want to talk about new revenues. We don't want to talk about all this other stuff because we said the first thing that should happen is make government live within its means. But we've come to the conclusion, we being the royal we on the program here, that would be me, have come to the conclusion that we are apparently just in a super minority, that there is no political, like you said, common sense cuts that would on the surface seem like these are pretty easy, Pretty small, nothing earth shattering. And yet the pushback, um, I mean, is there a political will? And this I'll start with you, Julie. Is this is there a political will in the government to make any kind of substantive cuts to try and make us live within our revenue stream? 
Yeah, you know, I, I've been answering a lot of emails from constituents the last couple of days. And I and I'll tell you what I've told them. There's actually there are um legislators in Juno wanting to make government more efficient on both sides of the aisle, actually. Um, so uh, don't lose hope because even though I, I won't say whether it's a majority of us or not, it doesn't really matter because if you do the homework and you can justify the cuts and people can see what you're trying to do and it's not going to gut a department or, um, you know, maybe it's something uh, we have to do by statute or whatever, um, people come on board uh, generally. And so I think for me, I, I have to do the homework. And, and so when, I, when I'm suggesting cuts and I, I can justify those cuts and explain why we can still make things go and just do it a different way and save a lot of money, there's people open to that. And there really are people that are looking at that. But I would say, you know, as far as maybe what you're talking about, the group of limited government, maybe that is a, a minority, but we we have to move towards efficiencies. We have to move towards cuts. And I think there's support for that. Um, but it's, you know, for the handful of us that really want that, we got to do the homework and, and be able to uh, explain what we're trying to do and try to, um, you know, ha have people understand the benefit of cutting cutting that right. those government costs. Well, and you have to fight back against some of the institutional old guard as well, because that's not in their wheelhouse. They're not interested in that. I would, I would right. think. Well, uh, I would say too, um, Michael, this year was especially tough because of inflation. So in, in many of the committee meetings, whether it was school or public safety or so many areas of our government are getting killed by energy costs. And so I did, I did recognize that it wasn't, um, you know, that we're just increasing, I, that, that I just pass uh, budgets, be, uh, these bloated budgets. But I did understand that there there was a fixed cost that people were really getting smushed by. And so I took that into account when I when I reviewed their budgets. Okay. Justin, what do you think? I mean, again, the cuts only approach is probably the preferred approach for my listenership and for most people, uh, at least to begin with. That should be step one, at least, of what we're talking about through efficiencies or, you know, eliminating waste. Is that a heavy lift? Is that uh, doable? As Julie said, maybe there's enough. But I mean, what are your thoughts on that as you've been there for the first year here? Yeah, I appreciate what uh, Julie said about don't losing, don't lose hope. I think that's uh that's an important aspect here. Um, I think that there is a, uh, a difficulty, I can only speak as a freshman and speak for myself, um, to, uh, there's a difficulty in being able to look into government process. Um, you know, a lot of the, uh, a lot of the folks from the, who were commissioners of departments were new this year. Mm -hmm. uh, so there was a, uh, an effort to try to get to know what departments, um, you know, successes or challenges were. And mm -hmm. in some cases, you know, you were faced with a lot of folks who were equally as new in their roles as you were. Um, and I think that the legislature has a responsibility here that uh, we maybe have not always followed through on from what I can tell uh, to bring uh, some of those things to bear. We have some oversight uh, capacity uh, through some of our committee work, uh, also through our budget and audit committee, uh, to bring some of our departments uh, in in for um, a hard look. Um, right. 
And I, and I think that's a piece, uh, you know, if you read through our executive budget act, there's a lot of responsibility in there for the legislature to get in there and make sure that, that things are working efficiently. Um, and I think that there is a number of folks, uh, as Julie said, on both sides of the aisle who do take that seriously. Um, and, um, I, I maybe was a little surprised that that was uh, not always our first attempt. Um, and again, being new, um, maybe it's not always been that way, but uh, certainly this year there was uh, there was an initial kind of thought uh, that we would really dig in and subcommittee work. Um, and um, th there's there's a lot more to be done. I think this interim, will be helpful to be able to dig into some of that stuff and come back uh, with the homework completed. Well, and I think part of the problem here is, again, we have what is traditional in governments. Bureaucracies are in some ways kind of running the show. Uh, there's been an abdication from past legislators and really, you know, taking their duty. And like you said, uh, looking at things, taking a harder view. They have oversight. They have power. This Executive Budget Act, I think, is a good step in that direction, and we could probably talk about that here in a moment. But we're going to go to break real quick, and when we come back, we're going to continue with Representative Julie Colomb and Representative Justin Ruffridge. It is The Michael Duke Show, Common Sense, Liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Back with more here in just a moment. Don't go anywhere. If you missed the show, you can listen to it on your time with Dukes On Demand. Oh, and it's free, like America used to be. Streaming live every weekday morning on Facebook Live and MichaelDukesShow.com. Okay, we're in the break. Uh, Justin Ruffridge, Julie Colomb here with us uh, as we go through. I hate to repeat uh, for the podcast, so we're just gonna we're gonna take a, a side trail here for just a second, and uh, we'll get on the personal note. We'll just get on the personal note. So, uh, <laughs> how's it feel now uh, to be back, um, you know, in God's country, be back in your home turf after all the madness of the session, Julie? Let's start with you. I mean, is is, is it better? <laughs> it's better. Oh my gosh, it was so good to be home. Uh, it was so good to be home when I when I finally came. Uh, well, I came home, went to the energy conference, had to go back to Juno um, and take you know, just tie up some loose ends and come back. And once where I was here, it was just really good to see uh, people in my district and be able to um, relax a little bit. Yeah, and, and just have uh, just some downtime. It was it was good, and we've got a. We have a cabin down um, past Homer there in Fritz Creek, and so that's a good, um, a good <laughs> relaxing place for me. We'll be fishing, and and the weather's not really bothering me. We're gonna go out and do anyway. So, okay, yeah, well, yeah. you're the only one that the weather's not bothering. It's just Miss Sunny, Sunny Susie, Pollyanna, whatever. I mean, yes, at least it's not. Just get your rain gear and move along. Right, at least it's not snowing. Right, that's the first thing that's Julie right. says. At least it's not snowing. Uh, J Justin, how about you getting back into the district and getting back home? Probably, uh, probably a welcome relief, huh? Oh man, it was so good to be home. Um, and, and honestly, I think, you know, I, I don't know, uh, about Julie, but sometimes I was a little jealous of the Anchorage legislators cause their, uh, their trip home is a little quicker. Um, so I, I think I was back, uh, in district, uh, three times during session and always just for one day. Um, and so, you know, it, uh, 
Yeah, there, <laughs> there was a lot to get done, though. <clears throat> the, 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 things don't just get put on pause. You have to actually uh, rake your yard and uh, <laughs> stuff, stuff actually still happens. Hey, when you're gone. That's why I had kids. Mow the lawn, kids. I'll be back. Uh, be back later. It'll be one of those things. Uh, no, I mean, I can't imagine you guys uh, have my respect, if for nothing else, having to put up with uh, 121 days of, uh, of being away and, and go, go, go. I know. It's early in the morning and late at night, and uh, you know whether we agree on everything or not. I you do have my respect for that kind of uh, that kind of ethos. I mean, I do that anyway at home, but at least I get to sleep in my own bed at night. You know what I mean? So it's uh, it's all it's all good for that. Um, the reaction overall. Let's see, we got about a we got about a minute and a half here. The reaction overall uh, from your district on the budget when you got back and and the whole session. Justin, give me a, a forty second synopsis of what your what your return looked like. Yeah, I think people were uh, generally, um, uh, well, uh, honestly, there's, they're only interested in a couple of things. What's the PFD look like? And uh, how did you vote on it? Um, and, um, you know, in my district, especially when you say the PFD was uh, 25% of what uh, uh, it was initially slated at, and uh, you voted no, um, that's... Uh, that certainly aligns well with what my district would expect. And Julie, you, uh, your reaction from your constituency when you got back? Uh, mine wasn't so much the PFD, but the BSA. Uh, my district is, um, everybody uh, was watching the BSA increase really, really closely and um, lots of questions about education. Um, a few things on PFD, but um, mainly, um, I mean, I think I got a lot of positive reactions from uh, the session, um, although that was mainly before the vetoes. So since then, it's been a little different. Little, little bit different. Uh, your district wanted more of a BSA increase, or they were happy yeah, with it. They're, yeah, they're more. They were. Yeah, they were um, wanting um, the BSA increase that was passed by the legislature for sure. Well, interesting stuff. We're going to continue here in just a moment. Uh, that ding means that we are returning to the radio and we're about ready to jump into it. The Michael Duke show, common sense, Liberty based free thinking radio, like it, share, like it, follow, subscribe, ring the bell, do all the things on all the channels and do all that kind of stuff. Let's get more people involved in this conversation though. It's going to take your help to do that. Uh, we continue now with Representative Julie Colum and uh, Representative Justin Ruffridge, the Michael Duke Show. Let's uh, <clears throat> let's get back to it, shall we? Here we go. The Michael Duke Show, seriously humorous with a pinch of intellect. <laughs> pinch of intellect. Sorry, that is humorous. Here's Michael Dukes. Come on, it is a pinch. I mean, that's an actual measurement from somewhere. Uh, just a pinch of intellect. Uh, the Michael Duke Show continues. We're talking uh, with a couple of representatives uh, from Anchorage and uh, down on the peninsula, R Justin Ruffridge and Julie Colomb. We're talking about the session. We're talking about the budgets. Uh, we're talking about the vetoes. Um, you guys both uh, had some pretty stern words uh, there near the end of the session as things got wrapped up. Um, and uh, I applauded uh, publicly on the radio show at the time. I applauded your 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 truthfulness about this because uh, it was very apparent or appeared to be from the outside, if you want to be, you know, uh, politically correct about it, that there was a lot of horse trading going on and that there was a lot of uh, 
of uh, buying of votes, I think, uh, was kind of the phrase that was used on a lot of these capital projects that got stuffed in the bills at the last minute in that last five hour window right before it was done. And um, you guys were pretty vocal about your feelings on that. Justin, let's start with you. Um, you, you know, you, you, you had some, you had some thoughts on this and weren't afraid to share it. No, I think, uh, you know, my exact words, um, I, I mean, I, I stand by what I said. I, I don't, uh, I don't like the thought of being bought, um, even for, you know, a dollar. Um, I went down to Juneau, uh, with the confidence and vote of at least the majority of the folks that voted. Uh, in my district. And uh, I think there was an expectation that there was going to be some integrity uh, from from their representative on some of these issues. And, um, you know, I, I went down there and I feel like I did what I said I was going to do, which was uh, uh, join a Republican majority. And uh, and when I when it came down to are you going to concur on the budget, I was pretty clear publicly that I would not because I felt like our process hadn't been followed well. And uh, I think there's only one quick way out of that. And we saw what it was. And, um, you know, there was, uh, yeah, there was certainly some very targeted amounts of money. Uh, My district uh, was a recipient of that, at least initially, and it has since been vetoed. So, um, yeah, I I don't, uh, I don't think that that, that didn't match my uh, my expectation of integrity um, uh, for myself, uh, and I don't think for my district either. So yeah, um, I, I was a no vote. <clears throat> We're going to talk about the vetoes here in just a second, but Julie, you too said uh, basically <laughs> it's like words. I think words got tossed around. I can't remember if it was by you or somebody else, but words got tossed around like being bought, extortion, some of these other things. I mean, there was some pretty, pretty, pretty bold language in there. Not that I disagreed with it. I thought that that was a prime example because we've seen it in the past. You know, they all may nod and wink and go, oh, it's not really what it is, but we know that's what it is. Your thoughts on a lot of this lucre that got thrown around at the last minute and, uh, you know, your comments on it. Well, I think um, it started before that when I had an article in Must Read. So I I had that article. And so that kind of stirred things up. Um, I will say, you know, I will, um, my comments right after I had a news, uh, news reporter in my face, right, coming off the floor, basically. And, and I was obviously upset. And so, um, yeah, I think I, I mean, I like with just, I mean, I stand by my words. I said I couldn't concur with bullies and bribers. And, and so it was, it was harsh. And I would say, you know, maybe I could have kept composure a little bit better, but, um, but I did this same thing as Justin said, you know, when I got elected, I felt like I needed to um, represent my district well, get what I could to meet the needs of the district. But also I have to keep my integrity intact and try to do whatever I can to keep the process um, um, like it's supposed to be. And so right. I was just upset with the process and what had gone down in the last 24 hours. So, um, yeah, I don't, you know, I, I, I got some, I got a lot of reactions about, about that, but I think um, underneath, I think it's just a frustration that, you know, to, to do, uh, to be there for that long and to do all the work 
and then to have the budget kind of laid at our feet right at the last minute and not to have a voice in the capital budget that was that was what was that that was what was fueling those comments right. after the well yeah. i mean <clears throat> i mean not to put too fine a point on it uh, i mean you say you still stand by the comments and i agree with that but it was a bullying tactic to literally drop it on your desk and say take it or leave it we're going home that mm -hmm. is I mean, that is a bullying tactic. I, I don't know how else you would put it. I mean, it is a point blank ultimatum to say it's my way or the highway. And and that, uh, for me, that was infuriating, first of all, because it, it busted the process. And I chastised my own legislator, Kevin McKay, because he voted for the budget and he said it was for this capital stuff and everything. And I'm like, it doesn't matter. Even if the budget had come back, it had gone to conference and it came back worse. They spent more. Let's just say that happened. The problem is, is that we've set this precedent for breaking the process. Now, you guys are freshmen. But that process is important. It is a give and take. It gives both bodies have equal power in certain things and they have to have, a, you know, this kumbaya where they have to come in and they have to be able to compromise. And this what they've done is they have fundamentally broken that process. Julie, we'll start with you. Yeah, so I didn't think um, maybe two weeks before that, I really didn't think we were that far away from what the Senate wanted. We had a couple of things and obviously the permanent fund that I think with some really good negotiations, we would have come to an agreement. I really did. I didn't think that it would be um, that far. We weren't, I didn't think we were that far apart from um, coming to the middle, but because we didn't have a chance to come to the middle and in my opinion, um, once that started shifting and the budget wasn't there and the budget wasn't there and I didn't see the capital budget, for me, the no vote was about the process. Because I, just like you said, if we do it, if we say that this is how we're going to do things this year, this is how we're going to do things. And I just, I couldn't agree with that. It wasn't, for my, for me, it wasn't even anything specific in the budget. I just, the process was so broken by that point that I just couldn't, I couldn't, concur with it. Yeah. Well, and I think part of the problem is that, again, it damages the trust with the public as well, because they expect a certain thing. And when you've done something like that, you've damaged it. And that's a big part of the problem. Justin, your thought on this damaging of the process? I think, you know, one of the things I keep really close to my uh, my heart right now, and, and I hope it stays there for a long time, is the fact that, you know, six months ago, I, I was not sworn in as a representative. I was... Uh, I was on the outside looking in, um, maybe a little more engaged in politics than some, but I, I know very well what the feeling is uh, of being frustrated by the stuff that you see sometimes. And um, I think it's really important for us to note that, uh, that there is some trust that the public has lost over time with our process. Um, I think there's an attitude sometimes in the legislature that, you know, you can, uh, uh, well, I guess that you are the law. Um, you get to do whatever uh, you want to do because right. who's going to stop you? Right. We can ignore. Uh, we can ignore statute anytime we want. We wrote them. We can ignore them. Uh, that that is dangerous. It is dangerous, and I and I think that you know what what I hear people when I go door to door and when I'm sitting in our park talking to folks is people want you to treat. Um, the the job that they gave you with that level of integrity to say what would i do um you know 
as, as a member of our community, as a general member of the public, how would I want this process to look? And I think that the responsibility is a lot higher for the folks that are elected to this office and to the seat to ensure that that process stays open, transparent, has, a, has opportunity for people to comment. Um, I can't tell you how many times that process was broken just in my five months there. I mean, I, there was a number of, of issues starting almost in the first month, um, you know, with, uh, with uh, the pay raises that I'm still adamantly against. Um, and, you know, that the, the process just continues to kind of be mushy. And uh, that, I, that does frustrate me quite a bit. Um, of course, we finally got around to the governor's vetoes. And uh, it was a long time coming. I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for something to happen. And it finally came out a little bit unusual, just came out basically as a press release instead of a, a question and answer, which normally is what happens. Uh, and he did some cuts, which I was not opposed to. I thought those cuts were a good start. I mean, again, I'm coming from a cuts only approach for the most part. Um, but one of the things that caught my eye was, of course, all these capital projects that cut, cut out. And the capital projects all got cut out from people who voted against the budget and this to, with no reasoning. And that to me seemed really weird and counterproductive. Um, have you either one of you received any uh, reasoning from the administration as to why it happened? What is that effect going to be in your district? What are your thoughts on that? We'll start with Justin. You know, I haven't had a chance to speak with the governor yet, but I certainly hope to here uh, in the next couple of weeks. Um, you know, and I have to say, although disappointed, I think, you know, the, the capital project in my district is a road that goes to our state prison. Um, and, and I do think that the state has some responsibility to help maintain that road. And, and they, uh, that road's been the worst road in Kenai for about a decade now. So, um, but the plan is still going to move forward uh, to continue to to have the uh, design and, and build for that road. And I think it will be fine. And uh, if I if I think through it and, you know, uh, having not spoken to the governor yet, uh, I could be wrong on this. But, um, you know, I think the governor has a responsibility to try to cut some of the budget. Um, and I think it would be easy to say, well, here are some folks who voted no on the budget. Um, so there must be some things in there that they don't like. Um, and, you know, I was very vocal on, I don't, I don't feel like being bought. Um, and so what a better way to, uh, you know, clear that up than to make sure I didn't feel that way. So um, I don't, I'm certainly not, uh, I'm not offended by it. Um, I wish, you know, we could have had a, a conversation about it beforehand, but um you know, I think it's chalked up to lesson learned for me, but um, yeah, it, it not not super surprising. Um, yeah, it would have been nice to have a conversation about this stuff overall. I think that's one of the things. If I have one criticism of the governor right now is that his lack of communication with everybody seems to be part of the problem. Julie, your thoughts on the uh, district projects that got canceled and the reaction, and have you talked to anybody in the administration, et cetera? Yeah, I haven't had any communication with the administration. So um, I I guess when I first saw the vetoes, um, obviously the BSA cut was the biggest thing. And then when I started walking through the capital projects, I kind of put it together. But, you know, the governor's in a tough spot. He 
if whatever he cuts, there's going to be a group that's going to be very upset about the cut. Sure. And I get that. And he, you know, we have a very powerful governor in the state of Alaska. It's set up that way. I knew that uh, going in. And he has, you know, I respect uh, his position. He, he can cut whatever he wants. Um, I think for me, um, you know, I had like a like eight hundred thousand uh, dollar Lursa project. We've got drainage issues up on the upper hillside, and so it's a project uh, similar to Justin's that has been on the books for a long time to get taken care of. Um, and we also had um, I had put in some uh, maintenance upkeep uh, for the Chugash Park. Um, access points that are in my district. And so, I mean, it, it's not, you know, it, it's something that I think would have helped my district, but um, I do, I understand that he's got to find cuts and um, the way the budget went down um, and the way that kind of uh, was alluded to my reaction to it, 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 it didn't surprise me, I guess, that those were cut. It's unfortunate because there's real people in my district that really need those projects, but it's not like any, you know, I can, I can move those forward next year too. try again. And, um, you know, I, I, anything that he cuts, like I can see in my emails, I have many emails from all the different things that were cut and people are upset about that. And just like to what you said before, um, you're not going to be able to cut government without people you know, being right. upset about it. Sure. Right. So, no. So everybody's got to feel that. the pain. Yeah. Everybody's got to feel the pain at that point. I mean, I think that's really the, the bottom line. And the problem is everybody's willing to say, yes, we'd love to cut until we feel the pain. And then it's not in my yeah. backyard kind of thing that happens all the time. But there has to be an understanding that eventually everybody's going to feel a little bit of the pain. That's how you lift it is that everybody feels a little bit of the pain. Um, hopefully. Uh, some people will start to understand that. And I'm hoping that, as you said, Julie, that there are more and more legislators who come with that mindset of finding the efficiencies first, maybe making some cuts, but reducing the size and scope overall. Uh, and maybe this Administrative Budget Act will help with that. We're going to continue with Julie Colomb and Justin Ruffridge in just a moment. We're going to talk about what's coming up next in the session. Their thoughts on that as we wrap up. The Thursday edition of The Michael Duke Show. Common sense, liberty-based, free-thinking radio. Back with more right after this. Listen to by more staffers in Juno than any other show. Because their bosses told them to. And after what they just heard, oh man, they're going to be pissed. You're a bad, bad man. The Michael Duke Show. Now, usually that liner draws a small smile on the face of legislators, but they weren't interested in that one at all. It's, uh, it's what it is. Um, you know, Julie, I, I really hope that you're right. I hope that there is a, you know, I mean, it, 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 you're right. Don't don't lose hope. Uh, I mean, I often say on the program, don't grow weary in well-doing, right? We can't, we can't stop the fight, even though we've discovered, I mean, after the midterms last year, what was supposed to be a red wave became the pink tinkle, right? I mean, instead. And it was discovered that, I mean, really, a lot of us in the state finally looked in the mirror and said, 
maybe we're not a majority anymore. Maybe we are a minority or maybe we're a silent majority where half the people have just kind of thrown their hands up in the air. They're so frustrated and 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 pissed off about politics that they just don't care anymore. Maybe they feel the way that we do, but they're no longer engaged. Um, but that doesn't mean that we can't stop. Now, I'm har- I'm heartened to hear that maybe that some of these freshmen have this have have more of an idea of saying, yes, we can do uh, more efficiencies and more cuts because. I mean, let's face it. Look at the numbers. We are spending more than any other state. I mean, we're spending a family of four is spending $60,000 a year on government. Are they getting $60,000 a year worth of services? I mean, it's it it's kind of insane. So I'm hopeful uh, when you say things like that. Do you think that it, you know, maybe in the next couple sessions that we might see some movement in that direction? Or will it be more of, like you said, common sense cuts that you propose and they're like, whoa, 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 can't do that. I mean, what what do you think? Yeah. So I it was mentioned before the Executive Budget Act, I think is going to be key. So one of the things that I've been looking at over the summer is how the subcommittees that I'm in charge of are going to be focused, what they're going to be focused on. And what I focused on a lot of um I mean, if you hear my speeches on the floor and everything, it's I'm looking at is what we're doing working, is what we're doing making the difference, is it providing the service? And the Executive Budget Act, really having those measures and goals and and seeing, you know, what the department's supposed to be doing and if they're achieving those goals, that's going to be uh, really crucial. And I, I think back to what I said before about doing the homework, I think if you do that, if you if you try to see, you know, what each department is doing and whether they're meeting those goals, if they're, um, meet, you know, under the Executive Budget Act, if they're actually achieving those things they're supposed to be achieving, um, you can you can make cuts. And I'm I'm telling you, there are people here that if you are if you if you may lay out your argument and it's reasonable and it's um, um, something they can understand. There'll be cuts. I really, I, I mean, that's my biggest thing this upcoming session. I, I'm really going to be focusing on my subcommittee work and trying to um, integrate the Executive Budget Act and and how I view uh, a right. department budget. Yeah. I mean, that's that to me. I, I'm not a real big bill person. I'm more on the finance or the accountability side with the with the operating budget. Um, I think there are some important bills there, but it's just hasn't been my focus um, of my time there. But there, there's definitely people that respond to um, a well laid out argument and and reasons why why the cut is needed or can be done. So well, I, I'm excited by that. Yeah, no, sure. I think more and more we need you know kind of this means based testing for these different divisions and departments. I mean, yes, you may need something, but are you providing the service? What is the level that you're providing the service? Are you succeeding? I mean, we need metrics. We you know it's like the right. education thing. We can't just keep throwing money at it if the metrics aren't there to check the progress. I mean, otherwise it just it's a black hole, and that's what we've created in this state. Justin, your thought on this? This as well. Yeah, thanks, Michael. I think that, uh, yeah, going back to what Julie was saying, I think there's an opportunity in this next session to, uh, you know, to be serious about the subcommittee process, uh, really digging into some of the the efficiencies that exist. Um, and I, I think that there is um, there is a need for the legislature uh, to really take some hard looks at things. I, I'll say. Just to be specific, you know, we had some issues that made very public, uh, you know, responses from 
people like the Department of Justice or, um, you know, our SNAP benefits were were having uh, some issues. And, and these were issues that when you go back and do the research and do the homework, people have been saying since about 2016, if we don't solve some of our uh, internal computer issues with uh, enrollment with SNAP benefits, uh, there would be a, a problem like what we had. And so um, there's a real important process here that's missing, which is I actually think is the legislature, which is holding people accountable for some of their actions. We just spent this money last year or we just spent this money five years ago. What happened to it? Um, right. We need to start asking those questions. Some of that accountability. I mean, the accountability is what you're talking about. And with the bureaucracies and like you said they've been kind of running the show in a lot of ways only giving the information that you want and a lot of times legislators just don't know which questions to ask and i'm hoping that you guys being the numbers crunchers and everything else that you are will be able to come up and ask those questions that are important so we're going to come back here one final segment here jumping back into it the michael duke show common sense liberty-based free thinking radio again like and share like and follow let's go uh let's go let's go Okay, last segment of the morning here for this Thursday edition of the Michael Duke Show. Joining me on the program, Julie Colomb and Justin Ruffridge, representatives from the House of Reps here in the state of Alaska. We've been talking about the budget, the process, the vetoes, the capital projects, everything else. We're going to finish up this morning talking about, okay, uh, we, we've kind of got the whole, we got got all that behind us now that we've laid all the groundwork. What happens next? Uh, I mean, between the fundamentally broken procedures you know the, the the policies and the and the uh the traditions that have been broken and everything else what do they see coming up in this next session uh it, having that thing being basically broken and uh and and changed what does this mean for the next session and for our goal i collectively on the show our goal of smaller more limited more efficient government living within its means we're not saying we don't need government we're saying it needs to be efficient but where does that where does that leave us? Let's start off with Julie this morning uh, and get her thoughts on where we're going in this next session with that. Well, I think it'll be interesting for sure. I mean, we I've only been here a year, and and to what Justin was saying, you know, not too long ago I was a constituent looking from the outside, and so I hope to just bring that perspective back uh, when we come back. Um, as far as the budget, I, I guess for what I would say is. I could have done a better job trying to cultivate a relationship with senators as well. I think I'm going to try to reach out and communicate better to some of the senators. I mean, my senator, Representative Kaufman, has been great and we have a good working relationship. But I just see that divide between the House and the Senate. Um, I don't think I really helped in that to try to build that a bridge over there. I just that's something that I would like to do better maybe communicate with the governor better. Um, I can only control what I do, right? So I'm not going to go in and try to say, well, you guys need to all change and you guys all need to do A, B, and C. I've been introspective and in trying to figure out um, my part in the problem. And so 
for me, I'm, I'm definitely going to try to reach out to senators better and the governor communication, communicate better. Um, and like I said before, I'm going to be focused on on the budget books. That's that's what I want to do. Now, what happens after that budget leaves my hands? I, you know, I, I there's only so much I can do, but I will, you know, for my part, I will try to contribute to, um, you know, a little bit better bridge building to try to make the let not because I mean, mainly because it, the people of Alaska deserve that. I need yeah. to figure out a way to get these 60 people to work together as best we can and to communicate with the governor better. And so things run smoother and maybe set up a, a situation where we don't have to do a Traduncan at the last, you know, last hour um, where they don't feel like that is even needed, that they need to do that. So that's that, those are some of my goals for the next session. All right. Uh, Julie, thank you. Uh, Justin, same question again, session procedure. What do you see? What do you think's happening? Give us your thoughts. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, growing up uh, the way I did, and I think we've talked about this on our show a little bit, I, I have uh, Bible verses that come popping to my head from time to time. And uh, that's the, uh, the Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, prayer service, uh, Baptist upbringing coming out. Uh, but the there's a verse in Proverbs that say, where there is no vision, the people perish. And uh, I think that there is a, a real need, and, and I can, again, only speak for myself, uh, to try to help uh, align a vision. Um, I really hope that the House majority uh, can come together and have a clear vision on, on what it is we want to accomplish in the next four to five months of being in Juneau. Um, what what does smaller, leaner government look like? Is that something that we want to stand for? Um, what does a uh, what does our education system need to look like? And is that something we want to stand for? Um, I think we have to pick something that we want to accomplish and then drive that thing home. Um, that was maybe uh, not all the way possible in the first session. Um, we're still all getting to know each other and trying to work through some some of those uh, you know freshman butterflies, I guess, but um, we, we really need to, to have a vision. And if I can help be a part of that and help drive, you know, um, to, to help drive a vision forward, um, I would be uh, blessed to do so. And I certainly would, um, you know, want to be a part of that. So um, for me personally, I think, um, you know, I'd really like to see some elements of our fiscal plan uh, come forward and at least uh, pick pick an element that is most important. Uh, my personal one would be uh, putting the dividend in the constitution with HJR seven. I think we can at least put that on the ballot for a vote of the people in October. And, and I, I really wanna try to uh, have that conversation uh, myself. And um, although I agree with Julie, I think there's a lot that I can take as personal responsibility and communicating and uh, trying to share that vision with others. So that's what I hope to do when we head back. Uh, quick, uh, I want to real quick here, just a quick answer to this. You know, uh, Julie said, hopefully they wouldn't have to come to the Turduck and hopefully it wouldn't come to these hostage and negotiation tactics at the end. Um, but do you, either one of you have any idea of, uh, ideas of how to deal with that? I mean, if this, what it ends, if this is the new paradigm, they've broken the process and this is going to be the new thing. Any ideas as to what the house could do to try and offset that? Do they hold their budget? What do you, I mean, what do you think, Justin? Yeah, I think it has to probably be a little bit of that, uh, you know, meet in the hallway and and hand hand it over uh, sort of thing. Um, make sure that you get the capital budget in exchange. Um, 
And yeah, there was some trust broken there too, I think. So we'll, we'll, we'll be back with that new attitude. Uh, Julie, what are your thoughts? Any ideas on fixing that or how you counteract that? Well, I know everybody's, uh, you know, in the heat of the moment, they're like, well, we're going to do, we're going to do that to them next year. But doing, you know, if I voted no, because the process was broken, why would I break the process on my side? So I'm going to do the right thing. I think you have to be smart, obviously. Um, but I'm there to, you know, make sure that the House has its say and the Senate has its say. And so I don't know, Michael, like what, what's going to shake out. I'm not out to um, make, you know, make everything right because this year was so bad. I don't, I just don't, I think we have to be careful when we say, well, we're going to do to them what they did to us. That's not, that's not best for Alaskans. I can tell you that. So, and I, and I don't know what the Senate would do, but I, like I said before, I think the best thing to do is to try to ward that off, start talking to the senators, start having better communications. Um, so that's not even a temptation for them. We're all on the same page all along, not towards the end. But I can't, like, again, I can't control them, but I'd be careful with suggesting that we do the same thing. I don't want to break the process either. Right. So. Uh, 30 seconds, Julie, just give me a quick final thoughts here before I let you go. Hey, so um, again, I just want, I, you know, I, I love your crowd. Your limited government crowd is uh is, is this is great i always listen to you and um i just want to keep people encouraged because i mean if you if you watch ways and means i'm telling you uh, uh representative carpenter's uh putting forward some amazing things and i know it seems like an uphill climb but there are people that are in your camp we are fighting for you we may not be as loud as other people uh, but there's a lot of people looking to um, uh, reduce the spend and get some uh, fiscal plan together. So, okay. uh, so be encouraged. Justin, your final thoughts here quickly. Um, just encourage people again to stay involved, stay engaged. Um, it is easy to lose heart uh, sometimes, but uh, yeah, get involved in local government, run for government. It's not all scary and all bad. Uh, I'm not sad that I ran for office <laughs> and uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's good to, it's good to stay engaged and stay involved that's really what makes democracy work um is is people being involved so get out there and have your say all right uh folks we're out of time the michael duke show tomorrow's firearms friday be kind love one another live well we will see you tomorrow hold the line folks we will see you tomorrow have a good day all right i, I rushed you there at the end so anything that i didn't cover anything that i didn't want to you know that we didn't hit on or anything you wanted to expand on this is your last bite at the apple we'll start with justin here anything else that we didn't cover i'll give you the opportunity to clear the floor here before we go um no i think we covered it pretty well i and i really appreciate uh, you reaching out and giving us the opportunity to uh to come on the program today and uh it, it's actually really helpful to to say your thoughts, you know, in a forum where, you know, it's being broadcast. So, you know, you have to do a little introspection to make sure that uh, what you're saying is how, how you feel. And so it, it forced me to kind of come back to say uh, some of the comments, you know, that I said now a month ago, you know, do those still hold true? And and they very much do. And um, it is a challenge being a freshman. Uh, there's a lot that comes at you, uh, but uh, I, I don't think the freshmen perform poorly. I think uh, we, to Julie's point, we we brought a fresh eyes and a fresh sense of 
we were constituents not long ago. And uh, I think that's been an important voice in the legislature. And um, hopefully folks can hold us accountable to that, that we uh, want to keep that going. So um, appreciate your listeners and appreciate being on. All right, Julie, your final thoughts here. Yeah, no, I uh, echo Justin's comments. I just appreciate the the opportunity to come on, Michael, because, I mean, I've had a lot of uh, press reach out to me for comments about everything, but the vetoes or whatever. Um, and I just think, you know, to try to do a one-liner in a newspaper article really doesn't exp express how I'm feeling about things. And I just, I appreciate you uh, letting us come on and explain kind of our perspective and, and what we've been through. And I, I definitely, I mean, I hope it came through. I definitely don't want to be super negative because uh, it, 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 the, the capital projects that got cut were pretty minimal. The BSA is a big deal. Like the governor's trying to cut the spending. And so there, there's a lot of good things that are going on. And even with the, the cuts, there's still increases to a lot of things that people wanted, maybe not as big. And so um, I'm encouraged. I, I'm using the summer to um, connect with my constituents and do a deep dive on a, a lot of these um, budgets. And I, I, I hope I can come on again and keep you updated as things go on. Yeah. Well, look, you guys are always welcome to come on the program. You don't have to wait for me to reach out to you. If you've got something hot to talk about, feel free to reach out to me and text me or whatever and let me know. Um, I mean, I think it's important. We have to keep the lines of communications open. And to Julie's point, it's one of the reasons why we do long form on this show. Uh, it's not often that you get a host that, you know, usually it's a 15 minute segment and you're in and out and you're mm -hmm. gone. Um, I've never liked that. I always want to go as deep as I can. Uh, I mean, an hour is fine for me. And I, and I, I, I appreciate you guys taking, I know it's a, it's a carve out, but I think these kind of issues require that kind of in-depth discussion. Like you said, nothing more dissatisfying than a, 10 minute interview with somebody where they cut one line out and put it in an interview and it's probably out of context and they don't understand it. You know, it's, it's very frustrating. And this is what Alaskans want. Like I said, my one criticism of the governor is that he is not communicating with people. People want to know what's going on now. Maybe not all, maybe it's the 3% or the 2% that are super engaged and are super voters like listen to this show, but those people matter and they want to know what's going on and they want to hear your your answers and justifications and reasons and the thought process behind how things happen we want that and so yeah we would encourage both of you throughout the session you know come on every few weeks and and talk with us uh in the interim if you've got something hot that you want to get ahead of you know coming into the session we would love to talk to you about that um i mean the one thing we didn't really talk about much today although we've touched it in passing on a couple things is the whole fiscal plan from the fiscal policy working group and and uh and from ways and means uh you know there's all these pieces that are there on the table and yet everybody we keep trying to move just one or just that you know instead of it has to be holistic and that's one thing that we really haven't talked about much at this point but it it's going to be a heavy lift but we've got to move everything at once that is the fiscal future what Justin was talking about getting a you know have a vision the vision is we need to have a fiscal plan in the state that has us live within our means. And that could mean new revenue. That could mean, uh, you know, more oil taxes. It could mean cuts to certain things. And it could mean it's the whole 
enchilada. It's not just one little piece. So I appreciate both of you taking the time out. Uh, Justin, thank you for uh, bringing Julie, and he brought Julie on with him, which I appreciate as well. I kind of like this little give and take with a couple different people because it, it gives us a chance to break up the perspectives. Maybe we'll try and do this a little bit more often where we get. You two are always welcome to come back, though, uh, anytime, uh, anywhere. And like I said, don't wait for me to uh, to reach out to you if you've got something, uh, if you've got something pressing. So uh, Julie Colomb, Justin Ruffridge. Thank you guys for uh, thank you guys for being part of it. Ooh, that's way too big. Thank you guys for being part of it today. I was like, well, I'll just push. No, I won't push that button. Like the Brady bunch. I know it's yeah. like what I suppose we could do the we could do the uh, there you go the three way thing. Um, uh, I don't normally have three people on, so I don't know what it looks like until it till it happens. So anyway, we appreciate you guys coming on board. Uh, thank you for uh, coming on. And like I said, don't you get don't you grow weary in well doing. Right. We're all doing we're all fighting it in our own ways. We may not always agree, but in the long run, I think the ultimate goal, I think all of us, if we can all nod our heads and agree, is that we're looking for the most efficient, smallest government possible that provides the services we need. Yes, we're all good. Uh, I think that I think that's it. Uh, And living within our means, that's what we need to do while still following the law and providing the people with the money that rightfully belongs to them in the form of the dividend, etc. So. All right. Well, thank you, folks, for coming on board. I really appreciate it. You guys have a good day. Enjoy your summer if I don't talk to you before the beginning of the next madness. (laughs) Thank you, Michael. Michael. All right. Appreciate you guys coming on board. All right, folks. uh, That's it for today. Tomorrow, it's Firearms Friday. I don't know who I'm going to have on. I might be Dr. John Lott. We'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm working on BJ Campbell as well. See if we can get BJ Campbell on from Hand Waving Freak Outery. I've been trying to do it. He's he's put me off. He says he's busy, but maybe we'll see. We'll see what we can do. Appreciate you guys being part of it. We will see you tomorrow. Common Sense, Liberty Base, Free Thinking Radio. shed our terrestrial radio skin and now we are slimy lizard internet people it's the michael duke show